0: I don't know about you, but every so often I really need to mix up my shampoo and conditioner because I get sick of whatever I'm using. So I took this quiz online on Gemist's website, and they recommended products for me and then sent me the shampoo and conditioner, and now I am obsessed. So it's it's just amazing, and now I'm really excited that they're my sponsor. Not to mention that Gemist is a women-owned company. The CEO and founder is Allison Harr She's a mom of two, a dog mom, and a Harvard grad. It's a subscription service, so I like don't even have to think about when I'm running out as opposed to you know, trying to squeeze out those last little drops from the containers and having nothing left. And they're quality ingredients, which are sulfate-free, paraben-free, dye-free, never tested on animals, and manufactured in the U.S., so that's all awesome. And it's shipped right to me and, well will be to you as well. Uh, And it looks and smells amazing. So definitely try it out. Uh, If you're ready to have the best hair of your life, try Gemist. And right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner subscription. So, go to gemist.com, get your personal recommendation, who doesn't love a quiz, and enter Zibby, Z I B B Y, at checkout for 20% off and free two day shipping. That's gemist.com, G E M M I S T and enter code ZIBBY at checkout to get the best hair of your life. Georgina Lawton is the author of Raceless, In Search of Family, Identity, and the Truth About Where I Belong. Georgina is a quote 20-something journalist and speaker, a former Guardian weekend columnist, and is now a freelance contributor for the paper and writes for a number of other publications such as The Independent, Stylist, Gal Dem, Travel and Leisure, Vice, Time Out London, and more. She is also a broadcaster and host of the Audible podcast, The Secrets in Us. Welcome Georgina. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. I've listened to a few episodes already, so yeah,
1: honored to be here. Oh,
0: that's so nice. I loved your book. Oh my gosh. Raceless in Search of Family Identity and the Truth About Where I Belong. I felt like I could not put this down. I was like zooming through it and then... I kind of wanted like, well, I won't even talk about the ending, but anyway, it was really great. And I'm so glad you shared your experience in memoir form for everyone else. So could you just tell listeners a little more about what this book is really about? Yeah. So it's my story
1: and it follows me reflecting on my life growing up with a white family, two white parents, and always having questions as to why I didn't look like them, why I wasn't white as well because I didn't have any answers for that and it was a really nice childhood i had really fantastic parents but race just wasn't addressed and they found it really hard to talk about my identity so i always had questions from other people you know why are you black why are your parents white why is your brother white i've got a brother with blue eyes and my mum is of irish background my dad's english and it just wasn't getting answered. We sort of alluded to this story that I might be this genetic throwback, which, which is something that came from my mum's side because she's from the West Coast of Ireland. And there was some, some Spanish sort of migration, but there was a story about the Spanish Armada getting wrecked off the West Coast of Ireland and darkening the Irish gene pool. And it's actually really a historical, not not, not fact, but it was something that we clung on to, I think. And it's something that I would repeat as a child because like, my parents had told me to repeat that. So it was a really happy childhood, but it was marred in a lot of confusion. And finally, when when I reached sort of, you know, 16, I was like, this can't go on. This, this doesn't make sense. And people were saying, you know, you look biracial, you look mixed race. And I was like, what does that mean? What is my mix? Like, how, do, how would this happen if my parents, my parents? So I write a little bit about growing up in the book. And then I go into sort of what happened when my dad got sick, which was when I was at university. And that was sort of the catalyst for for finding out more and for sort of going on this big journey, which I which I, yeah, describe in the book, I go off and live in different Black communities and try and sort of unpack the secrets at the heart of my family and try and sort of learn a bit more about who I am whilst also talking to other people who have who've had to unpack similar sorts of secrets around identity
0: or or parentage.
1: Yeah, that's that's the book in a nutshell, I guess. There's more, <laughs> I don't know if I can tell the end or there's quite a lot sort of online as well, so.
0: Well, I have to say your opening scene alone was like, I don't know, like... Watching a movie or something. I, the, the suspense. Can I just like summarize that your opening scene? I feel like I'm not really giving it away because it's like right in the beginning, although I'm tempted to give away the ending, but I won't. When you open it up, you see your mother in the hospital room and you describe both of your parents and their backgrounds. And then she gives birth and she looks down and her child looks nothing like her. In fact, her child looks like you and has dark brown hair and dark eyes and darker skin. And there's a moment in the book where she's just holding the baby and is like, what is my husband going to say about this? Right. Cause you point that paint them as being very in love and happy and no one says anything. And the nurse actually intervenes and says, you know, oh, well this is probably why. And, and then there's like the sigh of relief from your mom and then never gets brought up again. Right. This is like, I'm sure how you imagine yeah. that scene, like yeah, insane. It just, and so you grow up and then you say in the book, like, Yeah. I was a child. You like put it all in italics. Like I didn't question it because I was a child and this is what children do. Their parents tell you something and that's what it, what it meant. Did your mother ever, and I I don't want to like go into your conversations with her, but that actual scene, is it sort of how you imagined it could have been or did she ever actually tell you about that moment? It is
1: after I spoke to her at length, I had to go back and revisit my parents' lives and unpick exactly how and why this secret could fester at the heart of this you know, hidden truth because everybody could see that I wasn't white, but it was also a secret because it wasn't getting spoken about. So I had to go back and talk about this with my mom. And I wrote a lot about this in the book, but we actually went through lots of therapy after I came back from all my travels. We went through a lot of therapy and I had to ask her, you know, what actually happened in the moments that I was born? Why didn't anybody ask you if you'd had this affair or why I look so different to you? And she said that my dad never questioned her. He never asked her, to justify you know my appearance and justify herself and then that sort of codified the secret like it codified the silence and then everybody else took their cues from my family after that but it really came from my parents not not addressing it in their own marriage the second I was born the nurse gave them this little kind of seed that then grew into the whole tree of our family but it was not something that they addressed ever between themselves it was just not spoken about and then I was raised in a lot of love, but I was also brought into this silence and that was confusing at times. So I had to go back and ask my mum, you know, why did it happen? But also understand her position as someone that was brought up in Ireland as a Catholic in the sixties and who held so much shame and so much guilt with this secret and how that kind of manifested itself in our relationship. So I had to, yeah, I had to do a lot. We had to do a lot of work together but at times it felt like it was all me because I I was having to question everybody and it felt like I'd uncovered this like family-wide conspiracy almost that everybody was playing a part. Nobody had ever brought up my race because they'd all taken their cues from my parents. But then when I got old enough, it just became this maddening sort of performance I was like, why is no one talking about this? I I'm getting racialized as black. Why can't my family just say that word in our house? And it, it wasn't even said. Like the word black was never attributed to me by anyone or my mom or my dad's family, it was just unspoken about.
0: And then in the book, you say how your mother was sort of like, well, it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter what race, like we loved you. We love you so much. And that's it. You're our daughter. And you're like, well, this colorblindness is not really helping me out. You're leaving out an enormous piece of my own identity. Tell me a little more about that part.
1: Yeah. I think my mom's view at the start of discussing all these things was sort of, you know, very indicative of, of this wider kind of, issue that I think whiteness has which is if we address race in any way shape or form it's you know it's it's going to lead to something bad so let's just not address it at all but in our family I had to tell her how insane that was because I'd been growing up being racialized by other people for my whole life and for my mum not to to take that part of my identity into consideration it was it was willfully ignorant and it was it was coming between us because she wasn't able to to fully understand me and where I'd come from and my experiences because she was trying to you know, make me into something that I wasn't basically. So she found that really hard to um, understand when we went to therapy and we had a therapist who who spelt that out for her because I felt like that, but I was like, can I criticize my mum? Am I able to criticize my dad? And to have a therapist spell it all out was really, really enlightening. And it gave me a lot of permission to continue writing about these kind of things and to continue talking to other people because I needed those words to sort of legitimize the experience that, you know, this was a colorblind upbringing and it shouldn't have been because I am not a white child. So it needed to be it needed to be addressed. So, yeah, I think not people saying they don't see color. It's well-meaning, but it's it's also incredibly harmful. And I think my mum had to understand that. But it, it took like quite a while through our therapy sessions.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's like any big piece of who you are. I mean, if there's any piece of who you are that gets ignored, then it's not, then you can't feel like completely sort of loved and appreciated, right? Like if, if somebody doesn't address that, like, I, I don't know, I mean, I can't think of a good corollary, but in other words,
1: no, it's, it's, it's like a lot of people struggling with their identities. And I got lots of emails when I started writing about this online from, you know, people who had grown up gay and they hadn't come out to their parents and other people who had been misled about their parentage even without the racial aspect and it's like if you're not fully seen and you're not fully heard by the people that love you then it, it puts up a barrier between you and your loved ones and it means that you can't fully connect so I think it kept us more distant from each other than we needed to be because I had such great parents like my dad was so hands-on my mum was always there for me but with this issue they just couldn't bring themselves to discuss it which meant they, they couldn't fully connect with me in that in that way so again that was really painful like going back and explaining that to my mom because there's parts of my life that she'd missed out on and that she deliberately shut up herself off from because she couldn't address her own shame and her own guilt around why I looked the way that I did because that had come from you know her having an affair so
0: and the 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 worst not the worst part one of the sad pieces of this puzzle is that your dad passed away before you had any of these conversations with him. And it's so funny. I don't even know why this is on my desk, but I have Danny Shapiro's inheritance like right here. And then I have your book. And these are like both about the deep love of like a daughter for a father, despite the secrets that were kept. Right. And how much did the dads know? And I mean, it's such a, like, what do you do when the person who loves you the most was keeping something from you? Or did you not even feel like, like, it honestly seemed from the anecdotes you related in here and even like his conversation with his friends and that he never acknowledged it in his own mind. He was just like, we don't talk, this is right. And like, like a denial of of sorts. Do, is that how you feel? Or do you think he, like, what do you think was going through his mind? I replay
1: it so much, and I go over it and over it, and I still don't know, and I don't think I'll ever know. But I, I I feel in my heart of hearts, like he knew that it couldn't, that it wasn't a logical conclusion that I must be his. But he hadn't even admitted that to himself. Therefore, he just continued with his marriage, and he continued raising me, and he showered me in so much love. Like I, I can't describe to you how hands-on he was. If I, I think I put it in the book, but when I needed a pair of shoes after a night out he would drive to me when I said dad my heels are hurting he would drive me he would drive from our home to the club and drop me off another pair of shoes at like 2am or whatever because my my feet were hurting and I was so spoiled by him and I never thought that we weren't related and therefore when I found all this out after he passed away it was like losing him again because I had to sort of you know, I felt extremely grateful and it's ex- extremely saddened because I hadn't been able to thank him for raising me, despite the fact that he probably suspected we weren't alive. And everybody kept saying, your dad, you know, there's not many men that would have stuck around when they could see that the baby wasn't theirs. There's not many men that would have stuck around and not questioned your mum. And I had to stop and think, of course, yeah, there wouldn't be many men that would do that. But at the time, I didn't think. He was just my dad. And I was just happy to be spoiled by him. And he was happy to go you know, above and beyond for me in every way. He'd always stick up for me in family arguments. He always had my back. And that was just how my dad was. And I took it for granted. But if he was here, there's there's not enough words that I can think of to thank him for, you know, sticking in a situation that a lot of people would have walked away from, basically. Oh. Well, yeah. So, yeah, it's really, it's, it's so difficult to talk about even now because it was so much. Yeah, it was just so much. <laughs> there was so much love from that relationship and it's hard to even sort of like, Yeah. Describe how much love there was and go over it again because he's not here and we never got to talk about it. Sorry.
0: No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, so sorry. No, I mean, losing a parent and someone you love alone is a lot, but having all of this layered on top, it just like, at such a level of confusion in your grief, I'm sure. And, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have it even trigger. No, it's just, but it's... I just love talking
1: about him and I love sort of, you know, illuminating these memories through the writing that I've produced, but it's still so hard because I just, there's so much that remains unanswered, I guess. And there's so much that I still go over in my own head. Like, did he know? Did it bother him? How bothered was he if he did know? So yeah, it's just, it's still difficult.
0: (laughs) and he sounds like an amazing man. And then you're caretaking of him at the end, even when he was like, you know, you were like, why aren't you mad? And he's like, you know, this is my lot. I'm not going to be mad. Like, this is my lot in life. And he seemed like, okay. And then you describe as, you know, watching someone so strong and who clearly was so doting on you and just such a, a you know, a life force diminish. I mean, that is that is so hard too. I mean, you've been through a, this is a lot to go through. <laughs>
1: <Really>? <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot happened. Yeah, in a short space of time after like you know a relatively normal upbringing with some some strange kind of racialized incidents in my childhood. It was pretty sort of suburban and quiet. I talk about growing up in a book and going to a Catholic school and it being pretty you know steady apart from the the questions from strangers every kind of couple of months. Why don't you look at like your family? But then a lot happened in a short space of time when my dad got really ill and then, you know, yeah, that was so hard. As anyone knows who's who's gone through, you know, looking after a parent with cancer or watching somebody wither away through like a long term illness. It's just completely devastating and you can't, you can't escape it. It's there every day and they're living with it every day. And then even my friends, I talk about that in the book, they had to support me a lot because I was falling apart watching my dad fall apart. So it's like a knock on effect. and yeah, that was very, very traumatic. And it just didn't seem like the right time to to sort of delve into this family mystery. I, I tried to a little bit and I talk about that and I asked my dad, you know, why don't we look like each other and can I get a DNA test? And he said, yes, that's fine. I couldn't bring myself to process it when he was when he was so sick because that was really the priority. And he, his priority was looking after us and making sure that the family was taken care of and that, you know, like any outstanding things were kind of signed off. That was his priority. He was really focused on making sure me and my mum and my brother would be fine once he was passed away. So I just couldn't sort of unravel this, this 23 year old family mystery in the middle of all that. It just didn't seem like the right time. But then that's something I still grapple with. Like, should I have pushed for answers or should I have?
0: No, you did. You you did what was right at that time. Don't look back now. And, mm-hmm. I mean, That's what you had to do. And you were, I'm sure you were right. Like, otherwise you would have done something else. Do you know what I mean? Like, had it felt at all right, you know, for whatever reason. Also, just because there's no biological paternity doesn't have any impact on his immense love for you. And even if he had known, it would not have. It wouldn't have changed anything. I mean, his love. Like same for adoptive parents, or you can love and love and love, and it doesn't have to be somebody from your blood. It, that's only one thing. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's, yeah, it's 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 a, raises that strange question about nature versus nurture, and I know that I wouldn't be, you know, half the person I was if I hadn't had his love surrounding me, and I think we always we always underestimate how much love can do for a person and what people turn out like when they don't have that love in those early years like it just gives you so much like self-confidence and a sense of self and the ability to love other people and the ability to pursue something that you love like just having so much love in my life at the beginning but then having it taken away was just very very difficult so yeah it's something that I've tried to sort of portray in the book but he's always going to be my dad regardless of course it's just having to deal with the shock of that information and then process sort of a new identity because of that. It was very bizarre, very difficult. And it's funny that you have that book because I feel like there's a lot of people going through similar things right now because I get lots of emails about, you know, how the DNA testing world is democratising things for a lot of people, but also drawing skeletons out of closets that haven't, haven't ever been been taken out so it's, yeah. it's a very interesting time to see how the industry is impacting upon people's families and family secrets and how that kind of changes our perception of of how we love one another or will it change our perception I don't know some people cut their family off when they find out these kind of things everybody deals with it differently I guess and I've definitely gone through my own process of being extremely angry and then being very reflective and then you know being very confused it's a whole it's a whole process so
0: it's a lot and it's something that at the time in whatever 19 when whenever you were born like i'm sure your mother was just not even they could never have imagined and like so many other families like you just don't they just never they the option was not to discuss and how would they possibly have been able to imagine the science advancing to this point so quickly really i mean it's it's really mm-hmm. mind blowing i you know <laughs> Now this is going to make me sound like a stalker or something. But after I read your book, I was like, I really want to see what her parents and her brother look like. Like, what do they look like? What is, because you alluded so much to these pictures and the visuals of the whole thing. And there were a lot of pictures you posted, or not a lot, but a handful of your dad on Instagram or wherever, but I haven't found any of your mom. And then I was wondering why, why not? Like, did you, was that on purpose? And then I was wondering, what is your mom? I mean, she's still alive as far as I know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, what does she make of this whole thing? Like, does she want to be a part of your story? Like she seems super private and yet here's this book. So tell me about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Interesting question. Um, I think at the beginning it was really hard for her to understand why I was putting our, our private lives in the public hemisphere and in, in such a such a huge way. I was writing online in The Guardian and I had a little family column, which is how this book actually got created because I got contacted after the the column did quite well and asked to write a book. And my mum and I were going to therapy whilst I was writing the column and we would discuss my writing in the therapy session. That would be a whole session. She would say, I'm very annoyed this week. You know, Georgina's writing about our family and everybody can see it. And I'm not happy with how this is panning out. And we would discuss that in therapy and the therapist would try and make her see that this is my way of expressing myself and I've got this creative outlet and I need to understand what's gone on over the years in order to process it and move forward. But my mum doesn't work like that. She doesn't have the same creative expression. Even in therapy, I would always talk and talk and talk and she would be a lot more reserved and a lot more reluctant to speak. And sometimes there would be long silences where the therapist would have to, you know, prompt her and say, what do you think of this? Or how do you respond to this? And I think a lot of it came from her feeling really guilty. But a lot of it also came from just us being really different. I think like I really need to speak and talk and write in order to process the world around me. Whereas my mum, you know, she's raised on a farm in Ireland in the 1960s. It just she didn't have time for hugs. She didn't have time for reading and sort of those kind of pleasures. It was It was a hard life where she had to help out a lot. And then once you're old enough, you moved to Dublin or you moved to London to, you know, be a receptionist or to be a teacher if you were smart. And those were the options. That was it. Like there wasn't really a lot of time for for play and telling your family that you loved them. It just wasn't like that. They're quite stoic as well, my Irish family. So she found it really hard. Even when I was writing in The Guardian, I, I felt I didn't do this consciously, but people would point out that I wrote so much more about my dad and I, I left out a lot of bits about my mum. So in the book, I really tried to illuminate more of her, her personality because I look back at my writing in The Guardian, I think I was I was still quite angry and I didn't want to write anything negative about my mum because I love her, but I ended up not writing as much at all about her. So I was writing on, you know, how my dad helped me with my hair growing up and our relationship. I wrote a lot about that, but I didn't write a lot about my mum because I didn't want to write anything that I would regret but then I, I ended up not writing loads in that column. So in the book, I tried to, you know, shine a bit more of a light on my parents' marriage and what that was like, because it was quite it was quite happy. I never really heard them arguing about much. And I tried to portray what it was like for us and how our relationship, I guess, changed once I started asking questions about race and identity, because that definitely was something that I felt. So yeah, sorry, I hope that answers your question. It was, yeah, it yeah,
0: was, no. That, that does. I was just, and also the pictures, did she not want her picture? Ah, Yeah. So at
1: first, again, this was years ago now at therapy. This was 2017, 18. It was really quite tough. And I had to ask her permission to put her picture in any of the articles in the Guardian that I wrote. But then over the years, she's become so much more open. And I remember we had a really good breakthrough session where the therapist said, you know, Georgina's going to be doing a podcast. She's going to be doing a book. Do you think you'll be able to talk to her and be interviewed for this? Would you be happy with her writing about it on an even bigger scale than an article and a paper? This will be a book. This will be, you know, a long term thing. And my mum was like, yes, I feel like we've come such a long way and I really want you to understand more about yourself. And if you think that that will if you think an interview with me will help you, I'm happy to, to speak and I'm happy for you to continue talking about this for as long as you need. And I sort of remember turning to her and being like, whoa. And the therapist was like, this is a big moment for you, Colette, As my mum's name. I think you should have a hug. And we stood up and we had this big hug and we were like crying. And it was just a really big moment for me because she never used to be that open to me communicating to others about our family. So that was lovely. And now with the UK version of the book... You know, there's a photo of my mum, my dad and me as a baby on the front.
0: Is there? Okay, I have to go look that yeah. up then.
1: Yeah, yeah. So she's on the front cover now. And that was, I thought that would be a, a battle, but she was quite happy, quite happy with it now. She's come like a really long way.
0: I wonder <laughs> so, why they didn't do it here.
1: Yeah, just with the different publishers, they've all got different ideas about what what looks best. So the US were very keen to have no photos and have a typography front, but the UK were really wanting to have a photo. So
0: Well, it's a very cool cover regardless, but... Yeah. I really like the U S one. <laughs> wow. So where do you go from here? You have this book coming out, podcast on audible. You have, you still do your column. How, like what is going on? What happens next for you? Yeah. So it's
1: a weird one. Cause I'm now doing all these interviews about, about raceless. And I guess it's a story that I started talking about when I was traveling in 2016, 17, and it's followed me all the way up to 2021 because there were delays with the book. It was supposed to come out in 2020, but Corona, and I'm going to carry on talking about it for a while, I guess, because that's the book circuit. You need to keep talking, but it's really weird because it's sort of like emotional time travel. You go back and you relive memories that some some of them are quite painful and you want to keep talking about the book, but also, I guess, you want to try and work on the next thing. So, I've got a travel guide coming out, which is for black women. And that comes out this year and that's focused on all my travels. And then obviously Raceless is coming out in February and I'm now in the process of sort of writing articles about things in the book to kind of, yeah, draw attention to that. So I don't have the column in The Guardian, but I'm doing another big piece about my family and how getting a dog during lockdown actually helped me and my mum kind of come back together a Uh little bit. So yeah, just bits and bobs like that to try and sort of, yeah move move the story on and like draw people back to it in ways that are new and interesting. yeah, and the podcast as well that came out in November and that's that's got some interviews with my mum on it and that was amazing like to get her to open up and have recording equipment there. I never thought I would be able to do that, but she's come she's come so far and I guess it's brought us a lot closer. I just wish I could have my dad here as well to see how our relationship has changed and to see how you know this thing has come out of the closet but we're all so much more open because of it
0: in a way. Do you believe, so it would have do you believe that. that he knows now? Like, is that part of your belief system or not so much? I feel like he's always with us. And if he was here, he would, nothing
1: would really change for him. I, I really believe that. Like, I feel like he's definitely been with us in moments that have been super testing and super trying. And if he was here, he would be supportive. And I think he would have probably helped us through it in a way that is very him. He was always putting others before his own feelings. So I feel like it wouldn't have really altered how he views my mom or how he views me. But, you know, there were times when I definitely thought that might be the case. So it's, it's, it's nice to sort of hear other people's opinions and and reflect on how much of a great person he was as a father, as a husband, just as a human being, he was, you know, standout. (laughs) Um, Sounds like a really
0: special guy. Yeah, he was. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: For aspiring authors? Gosh, I
0: Guess. Oh, no one's asked me that. No one's asked me that before.
1: <laughs> oh, aspiring authors, I guess. Writing your truth is super important and, and writing in a way that's authentic to you. But that can take a while to develop your own voice. So I would say try and work on your craft and read widely, but also remember that whatever you write and whatever comes from you is, is going to be individual and it's going to be unique and nobody else can copy that. But it sometimes can take a while before you feel like you've got your your authentic voice, as people call it. And all you can do is practice to get there. Like I remember some of the stuff that I wrote for the proposal for Raceless. It's not half as good as what I've written now. And that's just because I've been writing all the time, you know, nearly every day for years. And I'm really pleased with the final product. But when I look back at my my drafts and my proposal, it was not half as good because I was still working on my craft. So I just think read really widely and write as often as you can. And then you'll find your own kind of lane and your own voice.
0: Love that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation, for this fantastic book that was interesting on just so many levels and really was like a love story to your dad, essentially, on top of everything Mm -hmm. else. So anyway, thank you for sharing. And yeah, now I want to read your piece about... Getting a dog. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think that'll come out in the Guardian soon. Yeah, it's about me and my dog Jasper. He's he's new. He's a greyhound.
0: <laughs> wow. Oh well, I wish you the best of luck for your launch and everything. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's been
1: amazing. And sorry, I've been like blubbing on camera. So
0: <laughs> uh, do not apologize. I'm used to it. It's fine.
1: Oh, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> I cry all the time myself, so no worry. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, Healthy, honestly. I tell everybody have a good cry at least once a week. It helps. <laughs> oh, good.
0: Yeah. Do we have to limit to once a week? All right. Well, <laughs> not. No, 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 no. All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Georgina, and have have a great day. And uh, thank you. I can't wait to listen okay. to this back. So take care. Bye. 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 Today's sponsor was Gemist, G-E-M-M-I-S-T dot Give it a try, 20% off their shampoo and conditioner subscriptions. Go to Gemist.com and get your personalized recommendation. Enter Zippy at checkout for 20% off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.